Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Bill Glaskell at the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm here with our co-host, Susan Walker of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Hello, Bill. Great to have you. And uh, urban is indeed the word of the day because we're focusing here on the future of America's downtowns. With many of us working at least one or two days a week from home, even after COVID appears to have peaked, and with offices pretty darn empty on Mondays and Fridays, the current and future vitality of many center cities is up in the air. So to dig into this topic and assess the possible risks and yes, possible rewards, we've assembled a great panel for you today. From Brookings Metro in Washington comes Tracy Haddon Lowe, telling the story of San Francisco's mounting economic storm on top of all that rain. We have Romy Varghais of Bloomberg News, Running the numbers for us are Stephen Davis of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and WFH Research, and Stan von Nierenberg of the Columbia Business School. And finally, to look at how the muni bond market views work from home and its risks and possible rewards, we have Howard Cure of Evercore. Welcome to you all. Before we begin, though, a couple of words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites, and also on the special briefing podcast. We've taken audience questions in advance, and we'll get to them in the second half. And of course, this special briefing is made possible with the support of the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation. And now let's get down to work. Susan, real estate and the future of downtowns, that's your bread and butter. So the floor is all yours. Uh, and not just mine, our great panelists for the day. This is going forward. Of course, a great threat to cities, but it's also an opportunity, perhaps, to rethink downtowns as they have been rethought over decades when challenges have been before cities in the past. So we first will hear from Tracy Haddon Lowe, who is a fellow for the Bass Center for Transformative Placemaking. Placemaking is what it's all about. So Tracy, give us your thoughts. Good morning and thank you, Susan. Okay, so today we're discussing the topic of the future of American downtowns. But to start, I want to point out that there's no one universal trend impacting downtowns globally, even in nations with mature knowledge economies. For example, office vacancy rates in Seoul are at historic lows, and London office utilization is at about 80% of its pre-pandemic level. Even just in the United States, cell phone location data indicate that a few U.S. downtowns are at or very close to their pre-pandemic levels of activity, such as San Diego, while a few are even busier, such as Salt Lake City. What U.S., Canadian, and Australian cities do have in common is relatively high rates of suburbanization. That is, the share of the metropolitan regional population living in adjacent local jurisdictions to their center city. 
While a seemingly small share of the suburban workforce works in their regions downtown, a typical share for a big U.S. metro area would be about 10%. This labor pool is a big deal for downtowns themselves. For example, in New York, this is 26% of the workforce south of Central Park. And in Seattle, it's 49%. It's therefore particularly impactful for downtowns and cities that office utilization rates have seemed to have stabilized at relatively low shares in many US cities. The concern is a cascading set of second order effects from this ebb of previously substantial daytime population surges, including first, declining office rents, which reduces the value of commercial buildings that are assessed by the so-called income method. The direct impact is to the owners of commercial real estate, quite a few of whom are now effectively underwater on loans secured by the office asset. But a broader public concern is the second order impact of lower assessed values for property, which will reduce commercial property tax receipts, an important share of general fund revenues for local governments. Second, other declines in consumption, such as food, beverage, and transit. Here, the private actors experiencing direct loss of revenue include many small business owners and lower income workers, which is a cause for public concern because of the social impacts of decreased earnings among small entrepreneurs and increased unemployment among their workers, all of whom may have to fall back on the social safety net to cope. And again, there is the second order effect of lost sales taxes and transit operating revenue. The importance of these revenue sources varies from place to place. So once again, there is no one size fits all problem or solution. In some cities and regions, these losses are quite urgent and are yielding fiscal and operational crises in the very near term. In others, these impacts may take a few years to fully manifest, in part due to one-time federal financial aid cushioning the blow for now. And third and finally, loss of vibrancy. In the empty space left behind by office workers and the retail enterprises that serve them, people whose needs are not currently being met by various systems have become much more visible to the general public, especially people experiencing unsheltered homelessness. So all this adds up to a sense that American downtowns are in profound distress. However, my personal sense is that it's much too soon to conclude that they are all doomed. While I think it's clear that telework is here to stay, I don't think it's completely clear that the current U.S. levels of telework have stabilized for the medium or long term. While there are some structural reasons that telework makes more sense in the U.S. than in other places, for example, relatively long commute times, there is also a lot of evidence that work agglomeration increases productivity. And so in sectors where productivity matters and there is competition, there is good reason to expect more RTO than there has been so far. That said, in the 10 years prior to the pandemic, the median square feet of office space per worker declined over 25% across the top 10 US office markets. So there were already very clear signals that demand for office was shifting. Rather than talk about a return to office, we should look for an acceleration of this evolution 
to a new modern type of workspace that meets new needs for collaboration, connectivity, and care. Similarly, the die-off of local businesses that serve knowledge economy hubs is making room for new business ideas and models that are responsive to a major economic milestone that passed almost without remark in February of 2017. The size of the leisure and hospitality workforce topped the retail workforce for the first time on record. Very low office utilization rates have made one thing extremely obvious, which is that central business districts where offices are an extraordinarily dominant land use, like over 90% of real estate inventory, perhaps do not actually reflect the highest and best use of the location from a holistic perspective. The industry best guess is that even prior to the pandemic, typical office utilization was 60 to 70%. Even between the hours of nine and five, therefore, places dominated by offices were not maximally active. While maybe no place is, the disruption of the pandemic has made it clear that we can increase the resilience of places, tax bases, and local serving small businesses and get more out of our existing infrastructure, such as transit systems, by diversifying land use mixes. The answer is simple. Cities should encourage the construction of more housing in and around their downtowns. While some of this can be accomplished by converting some older office buildings into housing, this should also include infill construction on surface parking lots and the densification of existing housing. And while the bulk of this housing will be for consumption by the general market, there is also a clear opportunity here to meet the needs of distinct populations whose needs are clearly not currently being met, including low-income households in need of affordable housing, people experiencing unsheltered homelessness in need of transitional housing, and people experiencing both homelessness and addiction or mental illness in need of transitional or permanent supportive housing. Various US cities have already implemented policies to help achieve these outcomes, but I think it's safe to say that in every city there's room to do more, and especially a role and interest for states and the federal government to help as well. The good news for cities is that building housing will achieve not only population growth, but positive second order impacts, including first, Increased demand for the remaining office space. Office conversions will reduce slack in the market and marginally strengthen demand for the remaining product while increasing the size of the labor force in close proximity, that is with short commutes to downtowns. That will also strengthen demand. In fact, what I found in my current research project is that high residential population shares and high job shares in US downtowns are highly correlated. Housing is not a substitute for offices in the case of downtowns, which will always be centers of work, but it is a big complement. Second, increased demand for local serving businesses and transit. For example, in downtowns where restaurants were only open for lunch, there would now be a bigger market for dinner. And while many who live downtown can walk to work, they are more likely to use transit for other trip purposes beyond commuting. And since nationally, commutes are less than 20% of all travel, that's a potential growth market for transit systems. Finally, Fred Kent once observed that some public spaces suffer because they belong to everybody. They are perceived as belonging to nobody. 
Yet, as he also observed, people have a natural desire to belong somewhere and to have somewhere belong to them. Again, the solution is simple. Beginning with housing and expanding to other acts of placemaking, connect the well-being of people and places that have been hurt by the pandemic so that all can grow into something new and more resilient than before. Cities that invest in being great places to live will also be great places to work. This was true before the pandemic and it will be true in the future as well. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tracy. And we'll be back to you in the question and answer about how do we get there? What are the steps that we need to take for this potential transformation? And perhaps no other area metro in the country will want those solutions more than San Francisco. And we have with us next on our panel, Romy Forghese, who is the point person on the political desk of Bloomberg News on these issues, and particularly has written about San Francisco in an amazing, amazing update of where the city is now and what are its tremendous needs in response to the crisis that appears to be upon San Francisco. Please tell us more, Romy. Thanks so much, Susan and Bill. Yes, I was so interested in hearing Tracy talk about the cities that have more than recovered because San Francisco is not one of those cities. It is, by many measures, ranking near the bottom of recoveries. And I think we all need to watch San Francisco because it is so vulnerable to these shifts that we're talking about, to this move to remote work. And it's almost like, sometimes I think about it like it's a company town like Bethlehem, Pennsylvania back in the day. But it's actually an industry town and that industry is tech. And as the tech industry progressed over the years, it really boomed in San Francisco. And you can see that from the numbers because if you look at the city's private sector payroll, tech accounted for just maybe like 5% 15 years ago, and now it accounts for well over 30%. And as tech grew, so did ancillary businesses to support it. And we have a situation in San Francisco where the economy, about 70% of San Francisco's economy is based on office using industries. I talked to Moody's Analytics, and they can rank cities that they look at on economic diversity. And San Francisco ranks near the bottom of economic diversity, along with towns like in the Midwest for manufacturing. So in the early days of the pandemic, we really saw this because the tech industry really embraced remote work. And my colleagues were writing stories about tech workers going to Lake Tahoe, driving up prices there, and even going around the world while still doing their jobs. And this is really significant for San Francisco because business taxes, which are the second biggest revenue source for them, the way they're structured is partly by the number of people who are actually working within the city borders. And, you know, some people just up and left altogether. San Francisco lost the most residents by percentage of any major American city during that period from 2020 to 2021. And it's understandable because San Francisco had been expensive for so long. And even now, you still need like $400,000 as an income to be able to afford a median-priced home. And then, you know, homelessness has been a long-standing problem in San Francisco. And, you know, it's even more jarring when there are fewer workers and fewer tourists on the streets. And then, speaking of tourism, San Francisco has not recovered like other cities. And 
you know, part of that is because San Francisco had always been a destination for visitors from Asian countries based on its location, right, on the Pacific Rim. And of course, Asian countries have had their COVID restrictions. But a big part is that business travel has been slower to return than leisure travel. And business travelers spend more than regular tourists. And again, that's where remote work comes to play because why would you go visit a city, visit an office in, in a city when that in San Francisco when fewer employees are actually working there? And then when you look at other measures, you know, San Francisco really ranks low compared to other cities. The, the office vacancy rate here is 25%, so record, it might go higher. I talked to Karen Chappell, who you guys might know. She's a researcher at UC Berkeley and the University of Toronto. She's been leading a team of researchers looking into downtowns. They just put out another update, and San Francisco's downtown ranked at the bottom in terms of recovery. And that's, you know, really because of how much its economy is just all tied to tech, which embraced remote work. And you know, this is all going to affect the city's bottom line. We're actually seeing it. The city is projecting a budget deficit over $728 million for two years, for its next two-year budget. And part of that is because of they have to downgrade their revenue forecast. Business taxes are still not at pre-pandemic levels. And the office vacancy is starting to hit their expectations for property tax revenue. And they're expecting lower property tax revenue because of this. So I would say in the beginning, the folks in San Francisco, the public officials, they were a bit in denial about what was going on. The, the mayor was still talking about getting people back into the office. And she did get commitments from our major employers like, like Wells Fargo to commit to bringing workers back a few days a week. But I, now there is widespread acceptance that remote work is here to stay. And now they're focusing on different ways to bring people back into the downtown, which I must say is office tower heavy. We don't have that mix of residential or entertainment that you see in other downtowns. The mayor has talked to us at Bloomberg about getting biotech to come into some of these empty offices. They commissioned a study from the Bay Area Economic Institute to look into different ways to attract business. And there's another study underway that would look at how feasible it is to convert these you know, massive office floors into housing. Yeah, but it's going to take a really long time for these recommendations to be implemented. And it's really gonna take a change in mindset because for so long, Business came to San Francisco. San Francisco didn't have to do anything to attract business. And now they really have to change their mindset and to make sure that they are an attractive place for people, not to keep people, but also to attract new entrepreneurs. Well, thanks, Romy. It's, a, I must say, not a, not a very optimistic outlook. We're going to deal with solutions later on, and especially during the Q&A. There's a bunch of questions about that. I just wanted to point out to you and, and Susan that Romy came to Bloomberg in on the West Coast from Bloomberg and Dow Jones in, uh, in Philadelphia and knows East Coast cities as well as the West Coast cities. I just want to uh, have a little brief housekeeping reminder. You're tuned into Special Briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. Archived editions of this and all past special briefings can be found right here on our websites or on the Special Briefing podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's get back to the latest on working from home and its meaning for cities with Steve Davis. And Steve, take it away. Thank you. 
So when the pandemic hit, the share of workdays performed at home rocketed from about 5% in 2019 in the United States to more than half in the spring of 2020. So what happened, we engaged in a sudden mass social experiment with new working arrangements. We're living with the fallout of that. We will continue to live with the fallout of that indefinitely. In recent months, the share of paid workdays done from home is settled in at about 29 to 30% of all paid workdays. That's according to our monthly survey of working arrangements and attitudes. Data from the Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey yields very similar numbers. Now, when you look across people, you see that the work from home rate rises very sharply with educational attainment and earnings. When you look across space, you see that the work from home incidence is greater in major cities than in smaller cities and towns. The occupation and industry mix of the local workforce, as we just heard with respect to San Francisco, also has a strong influence on the local work from home share. Tech workers, for example, tend to have very high work from home rates relative to most other kinds of workers. Even when you control for all of these other factors that I just mentioned statistically, the evidence points to lower work from home rates among people who identify with the Republican Party and in places that had shorter, more limited government mandated lockdowns during the pandemic. Now, I just gave you a list of five or six factors that differ across people and across space. So these factors partly explained what an observation Tracy made, that the extent of the shock associated with the big shift to work from home nationally is very different across cities in the United States and for a variety of reasons. Now, I also want to relate to Romy's remarks. So notice how the observations I just made relate to San Francisco. In every respect I just mentioned, education of the workforce, industry and occupation mix of the workforce, city size, political persuasion of the electorate, and lockdown strictness during the pandemic, San Francisco comes down on the side of the scale with high work from home rates now, okay? It's not just about the tech mix of the workforce. It's all of these factors put together that are making the shock especially pronounced in San Francisco. And it's much smaller in some other cities and even non-existent in some cities. So San Francisco has some other features that leave it especially exposed to the big shift to remote work. And we heard a little bit about of this already, but I want to just make this explicit. Before the pandemic, San Francisco, to an unusual extent, even for a city of its size, had organized its economic activity, its economy around large numbers of inward commuters who came into town every day. They were pretty high income. They spent a lot. When the commuting base disappears, local sales revenue falls, local sales tax revenue falls, the commercial property tax base shrinks, transit revenues fall, labor income shrinks for people who provide goods and services to those workers. So all of that hit San Francisco particularly hard, and it's happened to a greater or lesser extent in other major urban centers in the United States and in many other countries as well. Now, as Romy also stressed, San Francisco is an expensive place to live. It has longstanding problems with homelessness. Its public schools are not up to standards 
in terms of educating students. So for all of those reasons, if something happens to make it easier to live elsewhere, because for example, you only need to go into the office one day a week now, many residents will choose to leave. And we've seen that happen in San Francisco as well, especially among well-educated people with young children. So San Francisco is an extreme case, but it illustrates many of the challenges that are facing cities. Again, the extent of these challenges differ greatly across cities, but they're present more or less for all cities. They also present some opportunities, and I'll say a bit about that in just a second. Now, I've stressed challenges for cities that arise out of the big shift to work from home. We've heard a lot about the ales of San Francisco. That's the focus of this panel, the challenges for cities. But I just want to make it clear that all things considered, I see the big shift to work from home is highly beneficial to society at large and to the average worker, okay? Despite the challenges for cities. We can get into this in the Q&A if we want to, but just very briefly, what are those benefits? Well, they're big time savings from reduced commuting. There's also money costs from the reduction in commuting and fewer emissions, pollutants, and so on. There's more flexibility in time use over the course of the workday. You can be at home to greet your kids when they come home from school if you're working from home. And there's also greater personal autonomy, okay, which some people value all of these things. There are other benefits as well. Now, as I've already suggested, and we've heard from uh, Tracy as well, the magnitude of the local fiscal shock caused by the big shift to work from home differs greatly across cities. It's a huge deal in San Francisco, in Chicago, in New York, for example, but it's a modest factor in many other cities. But there's another more subtle aspect of the big shift to work from home, aside from the, the heterogeneity of the shock itself. I think it's really important to understand, especially if you're a city leader, and that is that the big shift to work from home has increased the sensitivity of your local tax base to the quality of local governance and to the quality of local public goods that you supply to the people who live and work in your city. And of course, that's especially true. The sensitivity is especially true in San Francisco, for example, because so many of the jobs that were traditionally taking place in San Francisco are amenable to remote work. So what this means is the stakes are higher now than they were before the pandemic with respect to getting the right mix of local economic policies, the right local goods and services. Cities that get that right, either by virtue of a well-functioning political system or just being endowed with amenities that people value. Those cities are well positioned to benefit from the shift to work from home. But there's also cities that don't get it right for a combination of economic and political reasons. And San Francisco is very exposed here. They do face this potential doom loop, this downward spiral where residents leave inward commuters diminish, the local property tax base diminishes, the capacity to provide local public goods shrinks further, and that makes the city a less desirable place to live and work. Now, I want to close on one last point. You know, while I agreed with much of what Tracy had to say, one point of disagreement is I don't see any decline in where we are from work from home now. 
As I mentioned earlier, direct survey evidence suggests it stabilized over the last six months. If you look at postings for job vacancies online from like burning glass data in the United States and in other English speaking countries around the world, the share of jobs that allow some remote work has been going upwards steadily since the summer of 2020, and it doesn't look like that trajectory has ended. So that suggests that the shift to remote work is here to stay. And so to city civic leaders, city managers, don't expect a retrenchment in work from home to bail you out. You really need to figure out how to optimize your city for this new set of working arrangements that were brought with the pandemic. Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks so much. You know, I, I never thought that I would see a Whole Foods opening at the corner of Broadway and Wall Street in lower Manhattan. So there's some adaptive reuse there because that was an office building, that a bank building that is that's now a very expensive condo tower. We want to turn now to Stan von Nuremberg, who has a fascinating paper out, rather apocalyptic. Indeed, it's called Work From Home and the Office Real Estate Apocalypse. So are we going from hopeful to totally gloomy, or where are we right now, Stan? Thanks, William, and uh, thanks so much for inviting me to participate in this fascinating uh, conversation. You know, taking a step back, maybe taking a few thousand years of steps back, you know, I think this idea of the separation of location of work from location of residence is really truly a, a revolutionary idea. And I think it's an idea whose consequences we've only begun to see. And this is something in my mind that is going to play out for decades to come. So I want to focus on the office market, as you suggested. And, you know, we all know office represents an important asset in institutional investors' portfolios. There's a lot of mortgage loans written against offices on bank portfolios. And of course, as we've already heard, you know, office generates property tax revenue that affects local public finances in, in important ways. So in the paper that you mentioned, the office real estate apocalypse, uh, Vrinda Mittal, Arpit Gupta, and I study what has happened to the office market so far and sort of also try to look forward and think about what is the shift to remote we're going to do to office valuations. And so sort of the first part, we look at leasing revenues. And interestingly, sort of compared to the to the working from home trends that Steve just talked about, office in a way is sort of a lagging indicator of where the economy is, because as you know, a lot of office tenants sign very long-term leases. The typical lease length on an office lease is seven years in the United States, which means that sort of, you know, as of 2022, there's still something like two thirds of all office leases that have not come up for renewal yet. Right. So what we see in the data in some sense is already a decline in lease revenues of around 15 to 20% with some interesting cross-sectional variation across cities. But in general, sort of all cities see large drops in lease revenue. But that's only the first shoe. Sort of the second shoe is yet to drop on the office market because there's so many leases that have not come up for renewal yet and that are now being renegotiated. On top of that, during the pandemic, tenants tended to like to kick the can down the road. There was so much uncertainty that they often, even if they signed a new lease, they signed a new, a shorter term lease. And so those leases are also gonna come up for renewal in the next few years, right? So what gives me sort of more cause for worry is that if you look at newly signed leases, the amount of new leases that are being signed, what we're finding is drops of 50 to 75% in new lease signing activity across cities. And again, there's some variation. Cities like San Francisco are doing worse. Uh, cities like Austin are doing better. Miami is doing much better. But there's across the board, generally, large, significant drops in new lease signing activity. Right. So if you think about it, basically, leases are perpetually rolling off, but a lot fewer new leases are being signed. That can only mean one thing, which is that the vacancy rate 
in office is trending up. As Tracy already mentioned, and Romy as well, you know, San Francisco, for example, hit all-time high vacancy rates, 24%. New York City hit all-time high vacancy rates, 23%. In at the end of 2022. And this is sort of, you know, only the beginning because of, of these dynamics that I alluded to, right? So if you sort of look forward in time and sort of write down a model, a structural model of lease renewals, how working from home affects sort of both the cash flows on office as well as how these cash flows are discounted, you know, in our work, we arrive at, you know, value drops in office around 40%. And again, there's some variation across cities. Austin is doing better, San Francisco is doing worse, but you know, across the board sort of on average that 40% number is sort of a good number for the US as a whole. If you put that in dollar terms, that means a $414 billion value destruction in office, which is significant. Now, these losses across offices, an interesting dichotomy going on where offices that are lower quality, call them class B and class C, they are suffering much worse whereas the very highest end of the market, class A, class A plus, is doing the best. In some sort of isolated cases, newer and younger buildings can even see increases in rent. You know, they're still sort of often suffering with sort of lease renewal issues, but conditional on signing and lease, they often can attract pretty high rents for these high amenity spaces. Now, importantly, there's sort of a tight connection between remote work plans and leasing activity, right? So, what we do is we you know, hand classify for the largest 200 tenants in our sample what their remote work plans are. You know, are they hybrid? Are they fully remote? Are they fully, are they going mostly back to the office? And we show that those tenants that report or ask their employees to come back to the office, those see much smaller reductions in their leasing activity than those offices that basically are going fully remote. And similarly with sort of number of days per week in the office, sort of the more days you let your employees work from home, the more as a tenant you have already cut your office space in these last two and a half years, right? So there's sort of this strong association between remote work and remote work plans and office demand. And so I think sort of the, as we look forward to time and as sort of the recession is looming, I think one important sort of consideration that I think sometimes gets overlooked a little bit is that it is expensive to put in a worker in an office. I mean, it costs about $15,000 for a typical office worker per year. And as long as these workers are not dramatically less productive working from home, which I think Steve's research has sort of convincingly shown, and I'm sort of uh, of that same view, they don't even have to be more productive. As long as they're not dramatically less productive, you can save a lot of money as a company by basically letting these workers work from home, right? So that's sort of a pressure that will only intensify, I think, as the recession grows larger. Now, initially, sort of in 2021, 2022, we had a lot of tech tenants that were bailing out the office market. You know, some of the largest leases in New York City were signed by Facebook in 2020, 2021, for example. Now these tech tenants are in trouble, and now they're massively pulling back on their leasing activity. Microsoft just took a massive write-off yesterday for, you know, in part payments for breaking its leases. Facebook did the same thing. Big tech is massively reducing its leases. And that was the bailout. That was sort of stabilizing the office market in 2021. That safety valve is now gone. I think in the longer run, we're going to have new technologies and also new leasing structures that are going to allow landlords to deploy the existing office space much more efficiently. Think of you know, office neighborhoods, office sharing across companies. And so that too, I think, is going to put a further downward pressure on total office demand, none of which has sort of materialized yet. 
Now, we're talking about offices. If we look beyond office, urban retail is affected just as much as office, right? We see this in urban leases uh, in our same data set, leasing revenues, new leases signed, net effective rent of new leases. All of these have fallen just as much for retail as for office. And as we've discussed, all of this has important implications for local public finance, right? So we talked about the property tax revenue in New York City, for example, 47% of tax revenue comes from property and mortgage tax. And of that number, 31% is from office and retail, right? So just to be concrete, if indeed our model is right and New York City office falls 40% in value, then that would cost New York City $5 billion per year in lost tax revenue or 5% of its budget. That's a big hole. And that's a big hole that will need to be plugged with new taxes, lower spending, all of which in this new world of a higher out-migration elasticity to taxes, which Steve emphasized, sort of potentially pushes us into this urban doom loop, the likes of which we have seen in Detroit and New York City in the 1970s. So one more thing, sort of adding to the doom and gloom, one more thing is that we now have much higher interest rates than we had a couple of years ago. That is obviously a big problem for valuations as well. And we have all these climate regulations coming down the pike in major cities like New York. Those climate rules are going to hit class B and class C offices particularly hard to the point that if you combine work from home, higher interest rates and climate regulation, I think you could convincingly argue that class B and class C offices is a stranded asset. For example, Bloomberg reported today that 3,700 office buildings in New York are not going to meet these climate rules, and they're going to have to pay $200 million in annual fines. If you're already struggling with office vacancy, an additional $200 million in fines is not going to help. So that sort of naturally gets us to the conversation on adaptive reuse. I think sort of the good news is that the worst hit offices, the class B and C, are often the ones that are most easily convertible, either because they're much cheaper or because these older buildings tend to have sort of physical features that are more suitable to conversion. I think the bad news is that there are many obstacles to conversion, physical suitability, floor plates that are too deep, causing very large loss factors in conversions up to 30%. Regulatory barriers, zoning in particular, also just sort of generically the very long approval process, and most importantly, maybe economic feasibility, feasibility, right? And so I think for all these reasons, office conversions have actually been de minimis. If you look in the last six years, only 1% of the office stock got converted to apartments. If we're lucky, we can convert another 1% in the next three or four years, but that's sort of 2% of the office stock, and, and the problem is sort of much, much bigger. Right. So what can we do? I think governments should, you know, at the very least, try to make these conversions easier, rezoning commercial districts for mixed use, relaxing rules about what constitutes a bedroom. A bedroom does not need to have a window. Maybe it's enough it has, if it has a sliding door that opens into a room with a window. And then sort of potentially streamlining approval processes and providing financial subsidies for conversion, tax abatements, municipal bond financing, loan guarantees. There's a range of options that, that city planners have. And I think, you know, as we've discussed, I think Tracy also brought this up, these subsidies could target specific locations like high density office areas. They maybe, we maybe give larger incentives for affordable housing. There's sort of a range of, of tools we have. So just sort of in conclusion, I think in the long run, we sort of going through this major revolutionary change, which will take decades to play out and which will basically call for a major reallocation of space away from office towards residential. I think it's going to be a slow and painful transition, not unlike the one cities went through in the era of deindustrialization. But I think policy choices can help ease this transition. And I think the cities that are most proactive will end up doing the best by shortening this, this period of adjustment. Thank you. Well, thanks, Dan. Susan's going to kick off questions in, in a moment. But first, you know, the term urban doom loop 
is probably not something that a municipal bond investor wants to hear. You're in Midtown, right in the middle of Midtown Manhattan in a, kind of a quiet office neighborhood. So how is this all being taken in, in the market? Is Are investors just shrugging these risks off or how is it being reflected? So I think investors are starting to really focus on this. We worry about just basic balancing of budgets, paying debt in full on time, and a lot of the federal money that came in, and the fact that tax revenues were so much greater than anticipated papers over a lot of these concerns. And then what was mentioned before, the real estate market is sort of a lagging indicator in that you have leases for buildings that run five, 10 years. So those leases are still being paid, even though the occupancy may not be as high. So when you're focusing on the commercial real estate and office buildings, you're gonna have these corporate owners who are gonna be very aggressive once their leases come up or their evaluations of the property come up where they're going to fight for some sort of reassessment and contest their valuation. So that's not only New York, it's all over the country where I think investors are gonna be really focusing on that. And then how much flexibility does a city have? Is it happen automatically in order to make sure that revenues from property taxes, which is often the largest source of revenues are stable? Does that put the focus or emphasis or burden more on single family, multifamily homes if you have a commercial base that's declining. So very important, not focused on as much, frankly, as I think needs to be. So that's one area about that. It was mentioned before the idea of conversions, which is not really as practical because of these deep floor plates of buildings where you still need windows and bedrooms. So a revisiting of zoning and permitting rules really has to be put into place. Let me be a little additive on something that hasn't come up, and that is just cities and counties and their workforces. I know a lot of mayors around the country, particularly in New York with Mayor Adams, are trying to encourage workers to come in and they are requiring more and more to have the city employees come in on a much more regular basis. So the question is, if an employee really likes that flexibility of being able to work from home, what happens to a city's workforce when they're competing with private sector jobs or perhaps other government jobs that are more flexible about that? You know, you have a number of vacancies, you're having turnover come in, and because of that, I think you really have to pay attention to the people who are applying and the quality of that people applying for these jobs. Then the other thing I want to focus on a little more, although it was touched on, and it's really about mass transit. Clearly, there are mass transit systems that recover much more from the basic fare box revenues, just the, the basic charges for riding the subway or buses. And they are a victim of their own success. 
in that they're the ones like the MTA in New York or the Bay Area Rapid Transit in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they get 50, 60% of their revenues from fare boxes. I've seen the greatest decline in their revenues. And it's also been papered over by a lot of federal money coming in. And I keep coming back to the federal government because I've never focused so much in my 30 plus year career of analyzing municipal bonds and municipalities, the importance of who is running the federal government from the executive and Congress and how generous or less generous or what emphasis they put on helping cities and mass transit systems and other urban functions, which used to be assumed that regardless of the administration or the party leading Congress, you'd have a regular natural flow of monies that may not be tampered with, and that's no longer the case. So the other point on mass transit is, I really think it's an equity issue, where you have, as my father used to say, people who work for a living don't have the luxury of working from home, people in the healthcare industry, people in the hospitality business, people in the restaurants, they have to show up. And they're the ones least able to afford a fare increase. So because of that, you're gonna have to make a decision as the managers and the state governments and local governments of these transit districts how you wanna get your resources. Do you raise sales taxes to cover some of this or some toll roads or gas taxes? How much burden do you wanna put on people who are really reliant on the system? Because if you cut back on quality, I think you're just going to perpetuate the cycle of less and less people riding the system at the same time. Now. We are in the midst and hopefully out today, and we could give it to you to post, a piece we put out just on national mass transit systems and how they're grappling with this situation. The last point, and then I'll give it back to you, Bill, to to leave off for questions, is maybe it's more and more of an emphasis for cities to join the counties and looking more at a regional approach to some of these issues, because if people aren't spending money in the cities for things like their lunch or whatever services, they are spending it at home, perhaps in the county outside the city. Now, there are some cities that have managed to function better, more as a regional government, say Nashville, Davidson County, or Miami, Dade County, but it's something that might be approached. So There are a lot of questions that, again, from a financial point of view in the bond market that have been papered over from very generous federal monies and higher than anticipated revenues that are really over the next couple of years going to have to be dealt with more and more. And a lot of the news, depending on the city, has not been that favorable and it could require drastic changes. And that's what I think people in my industry are gonna be focusing on more and more. Thanks, Howard. Doom loop, fiscal cliffs, 
as opposed to adaptive reuse. The story ain't over yet. Susan, why don't you kick off the Q&A? I'll be happy to. Thank you, Bill. Let's start with a question that's raised by Howard's last point. I'd like to ask the panelists in general, what do you think about Howard's proposed solution for metropolitanization of tax revenue? Will that work? You want to start with that, Steve? <laughs> Sounds like a good idea and extremely hard to execute, partly because uh, the non-city part of the metropolitan area doesn't really want to assume the fiscal burdens that are now facing cities and the city centers in particular. It does point to a another reason why the big shift to work from home creates particularly pronounced fiscal problems for localities in the United States, and that historically the U.S., more so than most other rich countries, ties municipal funding sources to local economic activity, whereas in many countries, you know, it's, it comes much more from a national and a regional level. That is also something that makes these problems more acute in the United States than in most other parts of the developed world. You might mention that right in, in Chicago, where you are, there is regionalization in the sense that I, I think last I counted, there was nine different government entities that all have their own taxing power in the metropolitan Chicago region. So the question is, how much capacity, how much more capacity is there to yeah, increase and, taxes? And the, the outlying suburbs and counties are often much more Republican than is Chicago. So the, there's not exactly goodwill to start with in some cases that would facilitate the kind of regionalization that Howard was calling for. Tracy, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, there is a clear history that whether it's regional revenue sharing of particular revenue sources, so for example, how sales tax revenue is shared amongst jurisdictions in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, or how revenues raised for transportation are shared regionally in the Portland metro area, there are examples that are easier, more targeted than total local government consolidation, like uh, the merging of the city of Miami and Dade County. But I think that in the cases where that's happened, it happened because mom and dad said it had to, the state mandated that local governments in those regions share. And realistically, the bigger picture that we see at Brookings is that there is a hardening of political tension between cities, metro areas, and states happening right now. So I don't see the current crises as softening that and promoting that kind of collaboration, though I, I want to see that. That is not what's actually happening. The federal government, of course, has a sort of obvious, like basic role in redistributing revenue across smaller jurisdictional boundaries. And in the case of transportation, whether it's transit systems or whether it's like economic development dollars through the EDA, I do have a great deal of hope that we're going to see innovative new mechanisms coming from the administration to direct dollars to these issues. You know, we are probably getting close to the limit of what we are going to see given the midterm elections. And I would come back to the question of more dollars from the federal government is that on the radar given the monies being having already come through in major bills. But before we go there, I'd like to back up because there were some nuances across the panelists on how permanent this shift is likely to be and what's the basic causes behind it. So let me just go back to addressing that. Do we have consensus that this remote work and potential implications then for downtowns 
are here to stay, that this is a new transformative change and it's not going away. Stan, you want to start us off there? Yeah, I mean, my view is that it is. And I think it's partially driven by sort of ultimately this will be driven by the productivity associated with remote work. And my view is that as long as that's sort of not dramatically lower than in the office work, this is here to say. And you could even argue that this has implications sort of even across countries, across country borders, because once I let my employees work from home fully, then I might as well hire somebody in India, right? And so I think this is only beginning to play out and it's potentially a very, very transformational shock. So Stan, let me just turn to Steve at this point, maybe come back to you in a moment and others. Steve, you have done some work on productivity of work from home. Tell us about what you see there. Well, I think Stan kind of characterized it accurately earlier. It's important to understand that most jobs consist of a variety of tasks, some of which can be performed as well, maybe even better in some instances from home than they can on the work site. So that's why so many employers have gravitated and so many workers have gravitated to a hybrid model where they're partly part of the week there at home, part of the week. That, I agree also with Stan's characterization of my previous work on this subject, that doesn't seem to have big positive or negative productivity effects. And because of all the other benefits, Stein mentioned the ones on the employer side, you know, the savings of the space, but there are big benefits on the worker side. And most people really like the opportunity to work from home two or three days a week, and they're even willing to shave something off their compensation in order to get that, according to our evidence, which is another advantage from the employer perspective, because you probably need to have less aggressive compensation increases to retain your staff if you give them the opportunity to work from home a couple days a week. I think Steve's raising a really important point there, which is this distinction between fully remote work in which you always work from home and could be on a different continent and hybrid work where you have, you know, occasional or some telework flexibility. Those are two really distinct trends that have really distinct implications for places. And so I think it's, it will help people understand. I don't think there is like a a huge amount of space in between, for example, like what Steve and I think the stickiness of telework is. It's narrower than it sounded in our opening remarks because it's really about understanding like hybrid work. Absolutely. Like here to stay, not going anywhere. The question is really like, are we talking like one? Are we talking two? Are we talking three? Right. Whereas like how big remote work is going to get, that is an enormous question that there's a huge amount of uncertainty around and could have, to Stan's point, tremendous implications. Uncertainty, uh, clearly, and also heterogeneity. We've heard from the panels today across cities with some cities, Miami, Austin, less impacted. Let's turn briefly, since we are coming to the end of today's wonderful panel, additional tools. What can we bring to the problem? What can downtown cities bring to help resolve? What are your major best reforms on top. Quick uh, 30 second, let's perhaps start with you, Tracy. What are the, what can downtowns do to address the problem? Cities should make it easy to do the right thing, which is to reduce vacancy rates at, you know, just by whatever means necessary. So, you know, that means rather than trying to force the owners of commercial real estate to convert to housing or another use, that their best bet is going to be to incentivize and to try to make it easy to convert to other uses. You know, even for the owner of a totally obsolete class C office space who's underwater on their mortgage, to be honest with you, they don't have to do anything with that 
They can just give it back to the bank and walk away. And then the bank is really going to do nothing with that. That's not going to be a good outcome for cities. That could drag this out for decades. Thank you. That's a great point. Howard, your thoughts? I think the issue of housing and affordability for a lot of cities has been brought up and coming into play more and more. It's really a matter of making a city attractive, livable for people, making the streets safe, uh, having opportunities for affordable housing. Yeah, yeah. there's Uh, a lot of opportunities that I hope are being taken advantage of in a rethinking of your urban setting. And starting with perhaps zoning changes, which I think, Stan, you would go for? Yes, zoning changes in one word. Okay, good. Steve, and then we'll wrap up with Romy. Steve? In addition to what's been said before, better schools, get crime under control, streets that people want to walk around on because it's pleasant, pretty, and so on. Those things will attract both commuters and residents. Okay, Romy, how do we move closer to utopia of what is maybe dystopia in some sense? You have to get rid of this mindset that downtown is for workers. Like in San Francisco, we have these big, gleaming, very cold office towers. Let's do something like San Francisco is trying to do this, but make it part of the community, have more events, be more coordinated about it, make it, make it a little softer. Experience. Okay, Bill. And with that, we've only scratched the surface again, and we'll come back and scratch the surface a number of more times. So stay tuned. If any of you would like to contact our great panelists today, or Susan or me, our media contacts, it's up here on your screens right now, and you can catch up with it on the replay on the Volker Alliance and Penn IUR websites as well. Thanks so much to Susan Wachter, to our panelists, and our great audience for joining Special Briefing today. We'll be back on Thursday, February 16th with another edition. Watch our websites and your email for details. Thanks also, of course, to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors and the Century Foundation, and special thanks to the folks behind the mic that make this uh, program work so well, Adam Compaglio, Graham Dowd, Dallas Foster, Amy Montgomery, Diana Lind, and Arden Jordan. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.